Welcome to CCO Podcast, calling college students to serve Jesus Christ with their entire lives. So um, you guys are here because you're interested in criminal justice issues and more importantly, how to create a more restorative approach to justice. Um, so today I just want to kind of unpack a little bit about what the issues are and then give you some tangible ways that you can get involved to make a difference. Um, so I don't think I said this before, but my name is Krista Ortiz and I serve as the Justice Ambassador Specialist at Prison Fellowship. Um, so I'll explain a little bit more about the Justice Ambassador Program later, but that's my role on the advocacy team. Um, so next slide. So to start us off, I thought it'd be fun, seeing as a lot of you are students, for a pop quiz. But unlike in school, no worries, there are no risks assigned with this. Only chances to win prizes if you like some swag. I got some swag bag stuff. Happy to share that. So for this first one, um, I want to hear you guys' answers if you just raise your hand. So since 1991, the violent crime rate has A, decreased by 10%, decreased by 50%, increased by 15%, or increased by 40%. Yeah. You're going to go with A? You are really close, super close. It is B. You both get a prize for that. That was awesome. So we're going to talk about that a little bit more later because actually throughout the nation there's a misheld belief that incarceration has been, um, I mean, violent crime has been steadily increasing. But actually for about, since the 1960s, it's actually been declining and it's down 50% of what it used to be. Um, So we'll talk about that a little bit more later, but that's usually a statistic that gets people thinking, why is that? So later I'd love to hear kind of why you think our perceptions are that way when it comes to this issue. Um, Next slide. So from 1976 to today, the rate at which we incarcerate people for crime has decreased by 25%, decreased by 45%, increased by 245%, or increased by 500%. What do you guys think it is? C. C? Very close. D? It is D. I probably shouldn't say very close, because then you're like, (laughs) I'll take the next one. (laughs) Yeah, so um, the answer is indeed D. Uh, It has decreased by, um, and, and increased by 500%. Um, Hi, welcome. So this is something that really just causes us to pause and really look at, okay, why are we incarcerating people 500% times more than we used to? And still seeing issues in our society run rampant. And so that's something we'll unpack more as we're talking together. But these are just kind of set the stage of what we'll be discussing. Uh, Next slide. So um, research suggests that only blank percent of the decrease in violent crime is attributed to incarceration. I'll let you guys read it out because... See that? <laughs> Do you have answers? Yeah. A. A. It is A. Yeah. So I heard you say I think it's A. So you get a prize as well. I heard that. <laughs> so the answer is A. So that's pretty interesting, right? If violent crime has been decreasing, but only twenty-five percent of that is actually attributed to incarceration then what's in that gap there? Like, what else is attributing to decreases in violent crime and seeing better outcomes when it comes to crime rates, both property and violent crime? So we're going to look at that because often the answer lies in, when appropriate, alternatives to incarceration that are more rehabilitative for all parties involved. So that kind of sets the stage for that as well. Do you want a book or a water bottle? Awesome. I lied to you. It's a coffee cup. (laughs) Thank you. Absolutely. All right. I think this is the second to last one to the last one. So one in blank Americans have a criminal record. What do you guys think it is? C? C? No. I'm not going to say. <laughs> yeah? D. 
D. It is D. I almost said so close. I'm glad I, I'm glad I caught myself this time. <laughs> so the answer is one in three adults in the U.S. have a criminal record. So this is something, a statistic that we often quote, because if that's the case, then we know this impacts us on our campuses. We know that children will have parents that have a criminal record. We'll know that oftentimes on college campuses, they'll actually have their own criminal record from a juvenile record. We also know that it's in our churches. Unless you attend some church that's in a bubble I've never seen exist, this is impacting us where we're at in our communities. So how can we actually get involved and use our Christian faith to respond to these issues? Last question. Which of the following is an example of approved prison fellowship language? Is it A, ex-felon, B, ex-offender, C, inmate, or D, formerly incarcerated person? You can take a guess. It is D. Look at that. If you want more prizes, I can give you more prizes. <laughs> yeah, so the answer is D. Um, we'll unpack this more, but really, this is what many people would refer to as person-first language. Um, putting the person before their circumstance, before their worst decision, before fill-in-the-blank. We know that we are all um, valuable in God's eyes, and we want to put the person before we put whatever circumstance that they're in. So we like to use terms like formerly incarcerated person or person who is reentering society. So right on on that. Awesome. So just to kind of introduce you guys a little bit to Prison Fellowship, you can actually go to the next slide as well. Um, We are the nation's largest Christian nonprofit, serving men and women in prison, their families, and we're a leading advocate on criminal justice reform. Um, This organization was started back in 1976 by Charles Colson, who was a former aide to President Nixon and actually went to prison himself on Watergate-related crimes. Once he got out of prison, he felt God's call in his life for a new purpose, to live out the gospel by remembering those in prison and by seeking justice so that we can actually really live into our faith and put that into operation. So for the past 40 or so years, we have continued his legacy. Um, We facilitate prisoner transformation, serve family members, and advocate for a criminal justice system that recognizes the God-given dignity and potential of every human being. Um, We hope to facilitate through a new awakening to new hope and life purpose that those who once broke the law can be transformed and mobilized to serve their communities and replace that cycle of crime with a cycle of renewal. Um, So the way we do this is by training, caring, equipping, and advocating. So under training, we train passionate volunteers like you guys to help us with our in-prison ministry classes. Um, So each month, 24,000 people participate in our in-prison classes in prisons throughout the U.S. And to make that happen, we have 11,000 volunteers throughout the nation who help run those classes. They also engage in the second component, caring. We care for family members who have loved ones who are incarcerated. Many of you may be familiar with Angel Tree Program. Uh, We give children who have a loved one or a parent incarcerated Christmas gifts, and we facilitate a strengthening and restoration of that broken relationship by sharing the gospel and giving a gift on behalf of the parent to their child. It's an amazing program. This last year, we served over 300,000 children with Christmas gifts. We also have Angel Tree Camping and Sports Clinics if you guys are passionate about working with kids. Those are year-round opportunities to just be a caring adult in their lives and mentor them and walk alongside them. So many of them don't have opportunities to do fun things like a a lake day. You know, go, go do water jet skiing or do a sports camp with some professional athletes that come in and mentor these kids. Um, so it's a really cool program. So that's how we care. And combined between In Prison and Angel Tree, we have 11,000 volunteers doing that. Um, the third piece here is equipping. 
we equip correctional leaders to help advance a more restorative and rehabilitative prison system. So we have something called the Warden Exchange Program, where wardens who opt in to participating in this program come throughout the states in different prisons, and they engage in a pretty intensive um, course for a couple months where they're learning what does it actually look like to change our prison environment so that it's constructive and positive for all parties involved. It's not just for the, the people who are incarcerated, but also the, the correctional officers. Everybody that's interacting with the system, they want to see it be rehabilitative rather than just punitive. So that's how we equip to bring about change. And lastly, we advocate. I'm going to dig into this a lot more later. So very generally, as uh, the title of this workshop says, we advocate for a more restorative approach to justice. Next slide. All right, so just to kind of set the ground stage and, and kind of unpack these issues, I wanted to share with you guys some statistics from the Barna Group, which if you're not familiar, um, they're an organization that does polling of particularly Christian perspectives on social justice issues. Um, they compare these statistics in relation to the general public and their opinions on these things. So back in September of 2019, Prison Fellowship commissioned Barna to do a poll asking Christians and Christian subgroups what they thought about criminal justice reform and the role they think the church plays in these issues. And so some of the findings I just thought are really helpful to highlight. Next slide. This is one of the first things that we got from people's responses. The national crime rate, as we discussed, has been steadily declining, yet most U.S. adults and the general public and practicing Christians think it's opposite. They think it's going up. So I asked you guys to be thinking about maybe why this is. Why do you guys think that we have this deeply held misconception that Violent crime is increasing instead of decreasing. Yeah. One hundred percent. I definitely agree with that. Yeah. You had something? I was going to say twenty-four hour news cycle means content. Yeah. No. Absolutely. And content is often highlighting the worst in humanity instead of the really good things like dogs that steal people's ice cream cones. I'm all about watching those videos, but you don't see them on the news. So, any other reasons or ideas? Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of people, we all want to see safer communities, right? So it's easier to inflate numbers or make it seem so much worse that people get behind you. That's, that's, definitely, that's definitely the case. Any other ideas? I think you guys mainly hit on a lot of them. And so that's something we're trying to raise a lot of awareness about, to say we are seeing positive movements. So let's continue this and look at how can we continue to maintain public safety and explore alternatives to incarceration when appropriate so we can continue to create sustainable growth and move in this positive direction? Next slide. So this was another one. More than one in four U.S. adults, more than one-third of practicing Christians, and nearly half of evangelicals agree that the church should be responding to justice issues and seek second-chance reforms for men and women who are in prison and coming out of prison. So this is a great statistic that across the board, compared to the general public, Christians hold a value that the church should be and is in the position to respond to criminal justice issues. But what's interesting, when asked this question, the follow-up question was, okay, does your church engage in any criminal justice advocacy? And there are few churches that actually do. So there's that disparity that we're trying to address. So just by a show of hands, how many of you attend a church or know a church in your community that talks about criminal justice issues and second chances for returning citizens? Your church? Awesome. That's really cool. I'm encouraged to hear that. Um, but it also highlights the statistics. I mean, there's, there's a good number of us now in the room, and only two raise their hands. 
So how can we start to equip churches and mobilize them to actually engage in these issues? That's what we really focus on. A big part of our work is church mobilization and getting the church to be the forefront um, and live out what the Bible says to seek justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with the Lord. Next slide. So Americans are split concerning whether or not it's appropriate to punish certain crimes and make examples out of certain cases and certain people. Um, Christians didn't really differ that much from the general public on this belief that maybe sometimes it's okay to sentence some things more harshly in order to deter others from following in steps. So I'm very curious. I don't want to share my opinion out of the gate. What do you guys think about that? Do you think that... um, justice would allow for sentencing certain crimes? Do you think there are any biblical values that might say positively or negatively to this belief? So it will, it, it depends. Let's just basically say that they're going to get a way harsher sentence than usual to make an example out of them. Yeah. Punishment doesn't serve as a general deterrent to violent crimes, especially. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, um, up, it's been proven statistically that the death penalty is not an effective form of deterrence. Mm. So there's no real like factual argument to keep that going. Yeah, absolutely. What was that? The death penalty has been proven to not be an effective deterrent. So it's, it's outdated. Specific deterrent. Well, yeah, that's that's very, very concentrated. Yeah, no, I mean, those are really great points. We know that oftentimes, even thinking in my own life, if I'm about to make a rash decision or a poor decision, I'm operating on the assumption I'm not going to get caught. And that's the case most of the time. So relying solely on, on punishment being a deterrence for crime, you need to bring more than just deterrence into what makes us have certain sentences for certain crimes. Because usually people aren't thinking they're going to get caught, and even if they think that might be a possibility, it might be a rash decision, and you're not really thinking about the consequence in that moment. And so that's something that we really look at, and and more so than that, what the Bible calls us to um, is justice that is proportional, justice that is redemptive in nature. Um, That's the core basis if you read throughout the Bible. God's love, God's mercy is just. In fact, in, I think it's Mark, it says that God sent Jesus to earth because he is just, not because we deserved it. And so we want to see that heart of justice be implemented in how we sentence crimes so that's proportional and people have a chance to actually be redeemed rather than made an example out of when it actually doesn't bear any real fruit in society itself. Um, All right, so with that background of Christian perspectives, I wanted just to share kind of a high-level overview of some of the key statistics in the field today just to kind of paint the problem statement and then offer you some solutions. Um, It's how a standard paper in school goes, so I figured I'd follow that format here. Um, So when Prison Fellowship was founded back in 1976, the prison population was around 440,000 men and women behind bars. Because of that 500% increase, we're now up to an estimated 2.2 million people in prison today. 95% of people who are in state prisons will be released and back into their communities. But unfortunately, within three years, two out of three of people that were released will be rearrested. So clearly, something isn't working here. And a large part of that goes to what we call collateral consequences. There are documented 44,000 collateral consequences, which are legal restrictions and barriers for people with a criminal record accessing different parts of community life, so employment, housing, education, financial aid, welfare. The list goes on and on. On my table, I have a list of some of the most outrageous collateral consequences, including if you have a felony on your record in some states, you can't operate a pinball machine. Why somebody took time to write that law, not entirely sure. But a lot of these collateral consequences 
don't have direct links to public safety. And so while maintaining public safety, how can we reduce these barriers so that we're equipping people to succeed rather than encouraging and almost setting up this cycle of recidivism where they're just in, out, in, out. They're put back into the communities and they're lacking opportunities to improve their lives. So some more statistics just to highlight the scope. Um, one out of 28 children in the U.S. have a parent who's in prison. And unfortunately, this number gets even smaller, highlighting the disparities in our system, and that one in nine African-American children have a parent who's incarcerated. So that's also something that we look at. We do sentence different people differently in our system. And is that just? Um, the answer would be no. Uh, if a crime is going to be held accountable, it should be the same across the board, regardless of your economic status, regardless of your social standing, regardless of the color of your skin. And so we use that statistic to highlight, one, the disparities, and two, how many children, families, and communities are greatly impacted by crime and incarceration. And so given these statistics, it's very hard to say, oh, this is something that impacts other people. It is clear. It's in our communities. It's in our churches. It's on our campuses. And so how can we actually get engaged to make a difference? One of the ways that we really firmly focus on is changing the system itself to be more restorative in its approach. So I'm going to spend some time unpacking that a little bit more. Um, You can go to the next slide. So what does that mean? I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with terms like uh, restorative justice practices or restorative justice. So very generally, an approach to justice that is restorative takes three parts. We want to see our system have a restorative approach that holds the responsible party accountable, that validates the victim and values their input in the system. It's amazing that oftentimes victims of crimes they're not, their voice actually isn't taken into account in the process. People can take plea gardens and get out of jail, and the victim's never even alerted of this. So we want to see that the victim's voice is validated and brought into this process. We also want to bring the broader community into play and create public safety by doing what we call the three areas of our criminal justice reform policies that we focus on. So one, we advocate for accountability that is proportional. We want to see that, when possible, alternatives to incarceration are pursued in order to create more sustainable rehabilitative approaches to our prison system. The second area of reform we focus on is creating a safe and constructive corrections culture. We want to see that men and women, when they're in prison, they're given accessibility to programming and opportunities that will build life skills, the character we want to see, and they can earn back the public's trust so that they're equipped to succeed once they're out back in society. Lastly, that goes well with what I just said, we focus on second chances and closure for those who have paid their debt to society. So given those 44,000 barriers, even when men and women have come out of prison, they've paid their debt, they really never stop paying. They go into what we call the second prison, where they face so many barriers, it's like they're back behind prison walls because they're never actually free from it and they're never able to prove to society that they're trying to earn back the public's trust. And so we want to raise awareness about those barriers and also help reduce those barriers. So the way we do that in actuality, operating under these three areas of reform, is through different policies that we support and our amazing justice ambassadors, which I'll share more about, they help us advocate for these different bills. So to give you some examples, um, some of you may have heard about the First Step Act. It passed into law back in 2018 um, at the end of the year, so it was right at the cutoff for 2019. Um, A great way just to highlight what this bill meant for people in, in a tangible way is talking about Matthew Charles. So... 
Matthew Charles um, was in prison. He served 21 out of his 35-year sentence for a drug-related crime, and he was able to be released early, um, given the fact that he served a certain amount of his time. That's how it often works for people. Um, He went out, even though he didn't have enough, he found a job. He started to provide for his family. He was doing really great and pouring in his community. Fast forward two years, in 2018, the Department of Justice won an appeal claiming that giving his sentence and in his state, he was not eligible for early release. So he was actually plucked out of his home where he was doing great with his job and put back in prison. This story caught national attention. It was in an uproar. Thousands of people signed a petition claiming that this was not fair, this was not just, he deserved to be released. This really served as a lot of fire behind the First Step Act. Because people were realizing that even though we had laws that were trying to reduce discrepancies of how crack charges versus cocaine charges were um, held accountable, people like him still weren't actually seeing the benefits of it. And so the First Step Act looked to actually implement those laws. It tries to create a more safe and rehabilitative system that's better not only for the people in prison, but also our communities and our economy by saving money. It also um, expands for more federal programming and provides more opportunities for earned time credits so that if you are doing the work, if you're participating in programming, you have an opportunity to earn time off your sentence. It isn't a get free out of jail card like some people were claiming when it was passing. It's an opportunity for them to work hard and prove that they've earned the public's trust again and get out for a little bit reduced time on their sentence. Um, It also looks to reduce and clarify mandatory minimums um, so that people are sentenced more fairly and more proportionally. Um, So that's what the First Step Act did, and he was the first person to walk out of prison thanks to the First Step Act. So um, he's amazing. He works a lot with the organization, and we were really happy to be um, on the forefront of really supporting that legislation. The second area of policies I want to focus on on really a state level um, is raising the age. So... Um, Some of you may know that in certain states, uh, people under the age of 18 can still be tried as an adult and sent to adult prisons. We believe that this is counterproductive. Um, It doesn't lead to positive outcomes for the youth to be put in a non-age-appropriate environment. So there are certain states who have passed laws, but they haven't haven't implemented them yet. Um, We have seen states that have passed legislation and are implementing it, like North Carolina, New York. Um, They have officially taken steps to raise that age so that somebody under the age of 18 is sent to an age-appropriate environment where they can also access age-appropriate programming, like mentorship programs, when possible diversionary programs, so that they can live with their families while still receiving the mentorship, care, and accountability that's required given a crime. And so that's something that another area we focus on to try to create more proportional, fair sentences and second chances. Um, The last area, last bill I want to talk about, and actually give you guys an opportunity to um, take action yourselves, is Pell Grants. So um, how many of you guys are familiar with Pell Grants? Most of you, yeah. I figure as students, a lot of us benefited from financial aid. So it's a a federal financial aid program, and that's how a lot of us went to college, was through scholarships, financial aid, and different opportunities to um, help pay for the high costs of um, education. So up until 1994, men and women in prison were allowed to access Pell Grants to pursue higher education degrees. But a law that's often referred to as the Crime Bill was signed by Clinton in 1994 that revoked all prisoners' access from actually receiving Pell Grants. This has greatly reduced the amount of people while incarcerated that can take higher education courses. Um, Unless you happen to be in a prison that happens to have a college nearby that provides these programs, it's very rare that you can actually afford to pursue um, a college degree. And so this is an area that we're looking on trying to restore that access for people who are in prison. Um, So real quick, just kind of myth or fact. Um, Myth or fact. 
if people will be able to have access in prison, it's going to encourage people to go to prison to receive financial aid. Yeah, instantly everybody's like, that's stupid. Yeah, so that is a, that is a concern and it's legitimate. And so it takes just looking at the numbers. Um, it's not a zero-sum game. Uh, it works like any other kind of financial aid. It's just based on income status, not location. Your likelihood of receiving the grant is just as much as if you were on the outside. So it's definitely not an incentive to commit a crime to get higher education in prison. Um, another miscon- misconceived notion is that um, if we allow people in prison, it'll take away from the broad pool of money for non-incarcerated students. Um, That's also not the case. Again, um, it's going to be the same pool. We're just opening up to more students who are currently restricted from this beneficial opportunity. Um, Given a pilot study done by the RAND program, they found that those who participate in higher education courses were 48% less likely to recidivate, meaning going back into prison, than people who didn't participate in higher education. That's pretty significant. That's nearly half of what you could be, you know, half less likely to go back into prison. So we look at that and we think that's an important thing to pursue. If we want to see lower recidivism rates in our country, let's pursue that. Um, which this is something I didn't share earlier, but we are 4% of the world's population, but we're 20% of the world's incarcerated. We hold 20% of the amount of people incarcerated in the, throughout the world in our country. And so given that discrepancy, shouldn't we be looking for ways to encourage people um, to open up doors and reduce some of those barriers? Um, It also changes the environment inside the prison itself. I've heard countless stories of people who've taken college classes. Their pod, pursuing higher education, had basically no violence. They didn't even need as many correctional officers to patrol because there was an environment of trust, accountability, and they were being invested in, which allowed them to invest in others and reduce some of that fear that's a part of a prison environment. And so we know whether you're getting out or not, this is an important opportunity for everybody to have this access again. So with that said, I wanted to give you guys an opportunity to use your voices. Um, If you pull out your phones, you can text RESTORE to 252886. Had a moment of reversing my numbers. Um, If you text this, you'll get a link that basically you'll just click on it and you'll fill out your address. Now, make sure that's your home address, not your school address, um, because we actually have a pre-drafted letter that we'll send to your policymakers on your behalf. And just to give you guys an idea of how much this matters, I actually worked in an office on the Hill, and it was my job to log correspondence from constituents, and it makes a difference. They tally how many of my constituents care about this issue, and they will vote given what you guys say. That's their job, to represent you. Um, So the more voices we can get on this, the better. So once you press send, feel achieved because you just had an amazing impact on our policy system. I'll give you guys a second to do that. Wow, you were really quick. That was impressive. I'm always just, I I type really slowly on my phone, so that's impressive. (laughs) My husband makes fun of me because I like tap it like a grandma. Am I good on time? Awesome. All right, while you guys are doing that. Um, So if you're interested in some other policies you can support, right now we're looking to make sure the first step is fully implemented. So we officially have the funding, um, but now it's just working with the the Federal Bureau of Prisons to make sure prison um, programming is offered. We're looking to implement that. So if you go to our website, we have a couple different bills that we're supporting, and you can always share that with your network. Like I said, the more voices we can get on this, the more likely that's going to pass, and we're going to see sustainable, lasting change in our system. All right, so 
that was one way you guys just instantly put your voices into action. I wanted to share a couple more ways that if you guys are interested in getting more involved, these are things you can do to shape culture and change policies. So the first one, going back to the question about what's our appropriate use of language, um, one of the things we want to see is changing people's hearts and minds on these issues. So to really get to the goal of changing systems and changing policies, we have to take a step back and look at how does culture talk about people behind prison? A lot of media messages paint what it is or what it isn't or what the person should look like or what they shouldn't look like. We want to break down those barriers, and a lot of that goes to our language we use for people. I'm sure a lot of you know labels are powerful, and what we call people holds weight on their lives. And so we advocate for that person-first language. So instead of using terms like ex-offender, convict, felon, ex-felon, inmate, those terms and those labels have been shown to just be really harmful. Who of us wants to be labeled by our worst mistakes for the rest of our lives? Yeah, none of us. That'd be incredibly unfair of us if we did that. And so um, we use that person-first language. So we say things like returning neighbor to really highlight the fact that they're our neighbors. They are our brothers, sisters in Christ. They are no different than us. They're coming back into our community. And how are we going to be welcoming them? Um, We also use terms like formerly incarcerated person. We say men and women behind bars. Sometimes we say prisoner. We say parent behind bars, people incarcerated. All of that has that more person rather than labeling by their situation language. So that's one way you can start to change cultures by changing your language and challenging people when you have conversations um, in nice and and kind ways. (laughs) Um, This one is my bread and butter. This is my my, program that I run over the eastern region. So um, the Justice Ambassador Program consists of passionate Christians like you guys throughout the nation who want to help bring about change in culture, change in their communities, and change the policy system. And so our Justice Ambassadors engage in countless opportunities like um, attending, planning, or even hosting advocacy events on their campuses or in their churches or in their community. Um, for instance, I actually have an ambassador in North Carolina. She is a college student. She's doing a film screening on her campus. And then they're going to have a panel discussion afterwards just to get people from her college ministry. I think she's part of InterVarsity. Um, get InterVarsity involved and also just people on her campus in general just to start to be aware of these issues. We also have ambassadors that do prayer walks or um, Second Chance Sundays during Second Chance Month. So those are all really cool opportunities. Um, Justice Ambassadors also host our Outrageous Justice small group. So Outrageous Justice is our six-week small group curriculum that really unpacks what the issues are in the criminal justice system in a really tangible way. And it applies biblical values and verses and research and gives you tangible ways that you can respond in your community. So it's a way you can start to have these conversations. And what I find by doing these studies, I'm actually hosting one right now online, and I have people throughout the states, it not only builds awareness for people who might not be aware of this issue, it also gives a space for people who've been impacted personally, whether as a victim of crime, whether their parents been incarcerated or they have, or their loved ones. It gives them a place that they can talk about these things when unfortunately often in churches, it's way easier to walk in and say, hey, pray for me because my dad has cancer. It's way harder to walk in and say, hey, pray for me because my dad just went to prison. And we think the church, all those prayers need to be voiced. All those requests should have equal bearing in what we're talking about. And so that's something that it's a great way to open those conversations. I actually have free copies to hand out to you guys today. Um, and it's all a free resource. You, if you guys want to do a small group on your campus um, with a group of friends or in your church, you can order as many free copies as you want, and it's just shipped directly. Um, I'm going to be talking about that later, and I'll just skip over that slide. Um, 
Lastly, uh, under the ambassador program, our just ambassadors actually develop personal relationships with their policymakers. So we equip them with the information, resources they need of all ages to um, go in and actually speak with their representatives or senators' offices. And just to give an example of how much this actually makes a difference, I had a just ambassador here in Pennsylvania, actually. She met with her senator, and it was back when we were supporting the First Step Act. She voiced her support, said that this is really important, it's going to make a difference for me, shared her story. And later, the senator's office actually called her back and said, your meeting was instrumental to me changing my vote to yes for this. And so it makes a huge difference. And our ambassadors are prison fellowships, hands and feet in the communities, making this difference, and as constituents, advocating for change. Um, So I already talked about outrageous justice. Um, um, When we wrapped up, I'll hand out some copies of the book as well so you can take a look. There's a study guide, and then there's also the accompanying book that just really digs into the meat of it all. Um, Lastly, because you all, uh, most of you are college students, I wanted to highlight that we do have a paid internship program at Prison Fellowship. Our headquarters are located in Lansdowne or Leesburg, Virginia area, and um, it is paid. It's full-time, so it's an eight-week minimum commitment, both undergrad and graduate um, students are allowed to apply, and it's in different fields like information technology, talent development, field operations, which that's what we call um, our in-prison ministry opportunities. Um, we also have some people in HR, so it's kind of it's an open for different areas of interest. And during the internship, if you guys come and intern, I'd be happy to regularly grab coffee with you and share a little bit more about advocacy work if you're interested in that in particular. So um, lastly... If you guys are on social media, definitely, um, if you're interested, follow us on Twitter and on Instagram. We also have a prison fellowship page um, on Facebook as well. So we often post different issues and topics. And um, we've been doing Twitter conversations about those BARNA findings and getting people's different opinions on issues. So we regularly engage in advocacy work on those platforms. I personally am not on Twitter, but I've been seeing a lot of the amazing conversations, and it's really cool. So if you're on Twitter, that's a really cool way to get engaged. So yeah, that's all I had for you formally. Do you guys have any questions?